Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Nelson Money. Nelson has more than 35 years of experience as a utility vegetation manager for electric, gas, and hydro facilities in Northern California. He is an ISA certified arborist and utility specialist and has a degree in forest management from Humboldt State University. This podcast features his talk on California's utility vegetation and fire risk management programs, Lessons Learned from Australia. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta in July 2011. Today I'm, I'm going to share with you just some of the challenges that we have at, uh, in California. And uh, uh, while California is just one state in the United States, um, and there are probably at least probably eight or ten states that have similar fire issues. Um, California is probably the, the most controversial. But uh, as we look at Australia um, and the time that I've been here and some of the research I've done, there are quite a, uh, quite a lot of similarities and something that may help in your management uh, as far as some of the challenges. And like I said yesterday, uh, maybe you won't have as many black eyes or bloody noses. But when we look when we look at California, uh, California does have some very rich forests. Uh, we have uh, our coastal redwoods grow well over 200 feet tall, 1,000 years old. Um, they, they're very similar to some of your rainforests over here. When you get into uh, Australia, um, different species of trees, but similar amounts of rainfall. So we have some similarities there. We don't really have a lot of fires along our coastal areas unless we're in the middle of a drought, but um, we do have some similar habitats. Um, Australian deserts, um, a lot of them look very similar to our deserts in California. Uh, we have uh, not as much, but uh, we, have, we definitely have similar uh, types of, of deserts. California was wine country. I spent a little bit of time in the Hunter Valley um, in Australia. Had a good time. Um, this, it can be more like into our Central Valley where we have a lot of fire risks. Um, can be more in the foothills uh, like you have around Hunter Valley. Um, we have had fires go through wineries. It can be very, very expensive. Um, something that um, all, all the wineries will claim definitely after a fire that we just ruined the best crop and the best vintage. Um, Australia vineyards, 
like I said, they're very similar. I think you, uh, in my time around the Hunter Valley, I can see where there's a great risk there also to you. Um, so, and there are some major challenges. Uh, I get a kick out of this as far as the uh, kangaroo in the vineyard. Uh, for us, very similar, but we have just deer that are uh, plaguing our, our vineyards. But I guess uh, actually the, the uh, kangaroo is not a problem as far as damaging the vineyards. Um, California's uh, fire threats and Australia's fire seasons. Um, you can see here that um, basically we have, this is a, a, a very high fire danger area all through here. We have uh, pretty much when we get south of here uh, in California, we have a year-round fire season. Um, Australia is very similar to that in that um, you obviously have a lot more, uh, a longer fire season up in here than you might have down here along some of your coastal areas. But um, it, there are a lot of similarities as far as risk, threat, um, and those type of issues. Active fire seasons in California, we can have, like we're seeing here in this particular map on this particular week, a lot of fires going on at one time in California. Um, we see the same thing uh, in Australia. Uh, depending on the fire weather, um, you can have many, many fires going at one time. So there's, there are many similarities there. Why utility arborists and vice presidents don't sleep during fire season? Litigation and investigations. Uh, I can tell you that uh, my career of 15 years um, being responsible for 15,000 miles of distribution and 2,000 miles of transmission in a dry state, um, there were many fire seasons which would run from May to November where I really didn't get a lot of sleep. And a lot of it was about this litigation, investigations, and what goes on. Spent many days um, in front of attorneys and depositions. Um, and those can be very, very stressful for utility arborists. And you're also constantly getting the call from the vice president. There's a fire burning in Central California. Did we start it? Are we responsible? California utilities in the news. Um, this is uh, a very common thing that we see. Uh, fires started, we're on the front pages of uh, MSNBC, um, fires that would, were caused by um, power lines. Australia utilities in the news, very similar also. Here we have an Australian fire claim, more lives, more than 170 people have now been killed in these fires. Um, very similar headlines uh, that we would have in California. Investigations of California utilities. This was a pretty interesting one down in, in 98 when uh, in the beginning, or for a long period of time, uh, PG&E would manage, they had about a $40 million budget. And I think I mentioned earlier in my talk where uh, some of that would be routinely taken for other uh, maintenance. And so it was not uncommon to have say 200 tree workers working up until about October and then to balance the budget, um, the vice presidents would take that money and put it somewhere else. So what happened with PG&E is that um, we started having fires. 
uh, we had a lot of tree line contacts. And uh, this uh, was a, a headline in the San Francisco Chronicle where they were actually going after us for $256 million. And it was based on an email. If I can caution you about anything, be careful what you put in an email. But it was an email that one of the arborists had, had mentioned that he had been out on the lines and he saw X number of uh, tree line contacts uh, along a segment of line. Well, the PUC took that and extrapolated it at uh, $10,000 per fine per day and came up with $256 million. So um, can be very expensive. Um, Investigation of Australian utilities, you have some of these federal reports where they're going in and, and checking on uh, fires caused by power lines. So there's, there's similarities there. Uh, I don't know if you've had the, the large um, uh, fines like we've run into. Regulatory pressures for Australian utilities, again, stronger regulation urged in Australia to prevent uh, fire, fires caused by power lines. Um, sounds to me like you're going through some of the similar things that we are in California. Media attention on power line caused fires on the Australian. Um, here again, a fallen power line appears to have caused Western Australia's devastating fire. And uh, same thing, lots of homes destroyed, uh, sometimes lives lost. These are pretty critical things that, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, uh, when those start hitting the newspapers, the utility arborist is definitely being called into somebody's office. Uh, misinformation on the web. I picked this up um, uh, off the web. It's uh, where they're actually trying to say here that uh, there are a lot more uh, fires caused by arson and power line failures. They came up with 40%. Uh, now. I know that's completely inaccurate. I've talked to some of the local folks here. They were telling me it's somewhere between 2 and 4%. And that's, that's pretty much in line to, to what we have in California. But there's this mis misinformation out there that affects you and your operations. Strict liability. This is something in California that really is affecting us. Um, as I mentioned, the... Uh, whether it's a county um, a district attorney or whether it's a, a state um, regulator, uh, the liability for uh, the, the utilities and the contractors is becoming almost, it's like this product liability, it's, uh, it's grown and grown for us as far as a strict liability issue. Now, my first um, week working in the vegetation management program, I threw this in here because uh, it's important to know that this CAL FIRE, these guys have badges and they carry guns. And they actually have come in, not in my office, they came in with it searching for information on foot. In California, they've also landed helicopters on utility offices going in with the badges and the guns, wrapped up all the computers, wrapped up all the files, and walked out of there. So it's pretty serious stuff. It's the type of thing that um, uh, they don't need a, a gun to walk into my office and, and get my attention, but uh, these guys are pretty serious as far, as far as going after you. Some of the regulatory solutions in California. 
Um, our uh, local PUC, our Public Utilities Commission, has come out with some requirements for minimum clearances around uh, in uh, urban areas. And uh, these 18-inch uh, clearances were actually adopted after a agricultural worker was trying to pick avocados out of an avocado tree and the tree had grown into the 12,000-volt uh, line and he wasn't thinking, he hadn't looked up and he just shoved the pole up to grab an avocado and came in contact. So um, this can be a, a real serious issue in California because not only avocados but walnuts, almonds, uh, we have to keep this clearance and it has nothing to do with fire, but it has to do with liability. Because if you have a tree, say it's a walnut tree, and it is within that 18 inches, and an agricultural worker is walking through the field, may not even be right at that tree, and comes in contact with the 12,000-volt uh, distribution line, you will get fined, and, and you will be in a real bad situation as far as liability. Um, and then again, uh, in our state responsibility areas or the fire areas, we have to keep uh, minimum clearances, and I'll go over the specifics on that, but we also have a clearing that we have to have here around the pole for certain subject hardware. So if you have a fuse or you have a lightning arrestor that in its normal operation has the potential to flash and drop down burning hot metal, you have to maintain a 10-foot bare ground clearance around that pole throughout the fire season. Uh, this was another thing where, I mean, we had issues with tree line contacts, but this was huge. We have 160,000 of these in Northern California, just on PG&E, and so it's quite a job. Um, some of it's done with herbicides, some of it's in areas where we can't use herbicides, so we come through on several different cycles to make sure we can keep that. Also along here, um, one of the requirements of the state is that we have to look at all these trees here and the definition of hazard trees for um, the state of California is vague and I think it's vague intentionally because it starts out with dead, dying, and disease. No-brainers for us arborists. We can pick those out. But then it throws in lean. So if you have a green tree that you've looked at, and you really are not seeing any significant defect that would cause you to remove that tree. If it's leaning towards the power line and it fails and that guy with the gun and the badge comes out and he sees that defect and the chance and the fact that that tree had a lean, you will buy that fire. So minimum clearances in California fire areas. Um, one of the things I find interesting in Australia, and I'm not sure all the background and why, uh, why you have such significant clearances, but in secondary, open wire secondary, um, we only have to prune for strain and abrasion. So we have had some fires from secondary where it pushes the lines together, they arc, fall down and start a fire, but in general, secondary is not a real big problem for us. And in fact, if we get the trees to grow up through it, and we do some pruning around that, it actually keeps them separated, and, and it works fairly well. In distribution, uh, this is the state law. Um, at all times and in all seasons, whether it's fire season or not, we have to have a minimum of 18-inch clearances at all time on our distribution lines. 
And distribution, as you get into the fire areas, we have to have four feet at all times during fire season. So that May to, or May to November. In the Northern California, as you get down in the South, it has to be that four foot at all times. In our transmission, um, LRA, which is uh, more the urban and SRA, um, we have actually, these are not the requirements that the state has as far as um, the Public Utilities Commission in the rural or in the urban areas, but PG&E has adopted these uh, more stringent clearances to uh, reduce our risk. 60, uh, 60 kV and below four, four foot clearance. The 115s, uh, the 230s, and the 500s all get at least 10 foot. Now this is this has changed recently with these 230s and 500s. Uh, with the new federal NERC regulations, so we are even increasing that uh, to 12 and 15 feet uh, to maintain the clearances there and, and pushing pretty aggressively now for removals. Some of the strategies for reducing risk, um, one of our southern utilities um, is facing billions of dollars in claims and um, this strict liability concept was a big concern to them. So basically what they said is, um, when the wind blows over 30 miles an hour, we're gonna turn the substations off. Well, that didn't go over too well with the um, Public Utilities Commission or the supervisors in that area. But I think it shows how serious the utilities are about managing this risk. PG&E uh, has also made some, has developed some strategies as far as uh, making sure that we have the proper clearances that we need. Um, and I'll go into some other strategies that, that we've adopted in certain really high risk uh, fire areas for us. Uh, the business of suing utilities. It's big business in California. There are conferences about this where attorneys get together with district attorneys who have been very successful at, at litigating against uh, utilities. So you have law firms that are recruiting uh, clients to sue power companies, and this happened to be in a children's camp where they not only sued the utility, but they went after the property owner for allowing the, the power line to be on their property. So this is really, huge as far as risks, um, and it's very interesting. I know several of these attorneys that run that and, uh, because I've been in front of them in depositions, and uh, it's, it's big business for them. Federal force suing for resource damages. Um, we have a situation going now where, I think I mentioned earlier in one of my talks that um, the Forest Service is not always very willing to let us get the kind of clearances we need or to remove what we consider all the hazard trees, but they're turning around and there's another segment of the Forest Service that is suing us or utilities and the, there's one here with the train uh, where they started a fire, but they're not only suing for the damages to go in and replant, they're suing for the wildlife uh, resources the aesthetic resources, and it's really getting, I, I think the last one I read about was $106 million. So for utilities, 
it's becoming very important to stand up and be very strong and not back down with the Forest Service on what really needs to be done on these lands. What are California utilities, um, what are they doing as far as fire risk strategies? A lot of money going down a hole. So what are we looking at? Um, most of us have an annual patrol of every mile of distribution and transmission. So PG&E has a $175 million budget. Um, they have 120,000 miles of distribution 110, 120,000 miles, another 20,000 miles of transmission. And it is patrolled every year. And uh, it, that's the only way that we feel we can stay completely in compliance. Contracts with uh, tree contractors and notification uh, contractors, they want to share the liability. Well, it's a little bit different. Uh, ask Howard how we're here about shared responsibility. But um, they write the contracts so that um, basically if anything happens, our tree contractors have to uh, defend the utility and in most cases um, are encouraged to pick up the costs. And uh, so it's, it's driving, um, it's first of all, the utility or the contractors, almost all of them that are throughout the United States have a special, special Western utility name and company because they could lose their entire operation in one major fire in California. So it is driving uh, some different uh, behavior by the utilities and it's also making it difficult for us to get more players into the market. Aggressive hazard tree identification process, um, I'll go into a little bit more detail on that on something that's come out as a best management practice from the UAA, but um, we are taking down not just dead and dying trees, we are taking down a lot of green trees. Trees that have been in people's neighbor or in their front yard for 30 or 40 years, and they have maybe a fire scar or they have a, a swollen part of the bowl, and every year we're taking more and more of those out. And it's really hard to get the property owners to agree to it, but because of this liability, we're pushing it more and more. Increased clearances at the time of pruning, where we might be willing to get six, eight feet, um, we're pushing more for 15 plus feet of clearance. Um, it's the only way we can ensure in the wind that uh, even with the clearance that we need, uh, when you have these heavy winds, strong winds, we can get contacts with the conductor. And we have an aggressive refusal process. If you tell me you don't want me to get 15-foot clearance on your eucalyptus, and I say, well, that's the only way I can keep it safe, we go into a process where we look at our land rights, we see what kind of an easement we have, we send you a letter, and we say in 10 days we're going to be there and we're going to prune your tree. And I get landowners that will say, no, you're not. And in those situations, when it gets pretty aggressive, we actually show up on site with the local law enforcement. So it's a pretty serious thing because we know if we're not responsible about that, when that fire starts, they're going to say to us, you knew better, you should have taken care of this. Um, bare ground treatment for facility protection, this is another way to look at it. We know there's going to be fires. Uh, you have some of this eastern type 
where you have lots of vegetation around poles. Some of it's just about protecting your assets. So it may not be a power line uh, fire. It may be from something else. But we need to make sure that we can protect these facilities. So we do some manual clearing around poles. We'll come in and cut all this uh, scrub brush back. And then um, one of the techniques that's being used is this granular herbicide application where it's got a little whirly and you uh, put this granular herbicide down around the poles and it, you can see all these grasses in here that come back in after you clear it. It uh, kills all that and it pretty much looks like uh, this when you're done. So if you're going for miles through a desert or through a real dry, line, or a dry area, you know that there's the potential for fire, especially with these wood poles. This is one way to reduce your facility damage and also improve your reliability. Transmission facilities protected. As you can see, the fire came through here. It wasn't intense enough around here to start these poles on fire. Um, also, um, you'll sometimes get conductor damage. But right here, the main emphasis here, because the brush itself is relatively low, is just to make sure we don't get the facilities uh, on fire. Facility protection and reliability, it's pretty clear right there the benefit of it. Um, if we weren't doing this kind of protection on it, uh, it would take us days and weeks to just get the grid back up and running. Uh, we're also doing some of this distribution facility protection where um, some of it is done before, but um, some of our utilities to the south have designated crews that go in in advance of a fire as it's coming in, and they clear uh, 15 feet around the poles, and they actually spray the poles with a uh, fire retardant, and it's been fairly successful in protecting their facilities in those fires. What are some of the industry professional strategies? Here we're getting to utility arborist, our best management practices. Um, this was put together um, out of all the risks, all the liability and everything that was going on, and we wanted to have a standard. We wanted to be able to sit across the table from an attorney in a deposition and say, we do have a best management strategy. And maybe it was a wind, knocked down a tree, started a fire, but we do have a good strategy to evaluate hazard trees. Um, why develop the best management practices? Well, hazard trees represent a significant liability to the general public, cities, counties, and utilities. Unmanaged hazard trees can cause personal in injuries and fatalities, damage to public and private property, power outages, and threats to the nature's, nature's or nation's uh, critical infrastructure. <clears throat> so the utility arborist found that it, there was a need for this. And so what we did is um, uh, we developed this BMP, which was intended to be really an industry and stakeholder accepted protocol. So you'll see in the next couple of slides, we brought everybody in on this. We wanted everybody to partner in on this risk. Um, the application of this BMP is intended for the fire-prone states and provinces in the western region of North America. So while we use it in California, it's also applicable in areas, uh, Arizona, Utah, any of the western states where they have similar issues. 
The long-term goal is to produce a national and international set of guidelines that could be adapted to meet local or regional conditions. So we, we, we reached out to partner and we brought all these different people in. Um, not only the fire agencies that were regulating us, but we also brought in uh, large landowners, forestry landowners. Uh, we brought in the agencies like Fish and Wildlife, State Fish and Game, the folks that were also making it a little more difficult for us to take some of these trees down. We wanted some ownership. Um, so, and we had, um, as you can see here, basically every major utility in uh, California was represented here. And we also brought in some of the ones, uh, Randy Miller here uh, from Pacific Corp, which is up in Oregon and Utah. Um, brought in Cal Fire's um, Urban Forester uh, to get his support on it. Um, pretty much all the contractors were signed up to be a part of this because it was gonna affect all of us when we were done. Uh, the working group's opinion was that each utility should develop a hazard tree plan that is, at minimum, would address uh, identifying hazard trees, defects that should be considered a hazard, assessing severity of failure potential, uh, the trigger for a detailed tree inspection. Um, when you're walking these right-of-ways, um, if, if your tallest tree is 100 and 120 feet tall, that's really how far you have to go out and look. You can't just be walking underneath the power lines and making these decisions. So you also need a trigger that you'll know when you have to walk out from the power line to take a look at something that maybe has gotten your attention. And what is the frequency of patrols? Possibly a multi-tiered approach. You might patrol annually. Yes? Yes. Yeah, and, and, it, and it might be something, for example, as you're walking along, it could be, like I mentioned, lean. You could see a tree that, um, I mean, these trees might be 70, 80 years old and have been growing this way all their life, but because it had a lean, it would uh, incent you to go out and make a, a, a better inspection around it. Correct. Now, it's still, though, up to the utility how they manage that. They might decide that on um, every year they're going to patrol underneath the lines or back and forth to look for encroachments that are coming at the uh, conductor. But they might say, only every fifth year will I actually go out and take a, uh, a more detailed look at what appears to be green trees. Now, as you're walking through, you'll see dead, dying, or uh, trees that are starting to fade. You'll still get those every year. But as a utility, you can make a decision. I, I feel the risk is, is okay that every fifth year, we will do a detailed walkout on that 100. Yes. And, and this, this tree here is a grape pine, and they are a... Um, they don't seem to ever grow straight up. So, and, and they also seem to always lean towards the line. I'm not sure what's going on there, but, but uh, these are the trees that, um, you know, you really have to spend some time on. And uh, fortunately, that tree is not a real high-value tree in California, so um, a lot of times property owners are very happy for you to knock it down. 
That's, um, let's see, I think I got that on the next slide here. Um, that, that's another part of it is that um, those qualifications are generally left to the utility to assign out to the contractor. And um, each utility has um, a different way of approaching it. At PG&E, um, their approach was, okay, you're under contract to patrol the lines to meet compliance with public resource code. So you submit to me your plan for the qualifications and review of those hazard trees. And that was one way for them to take a step back and they felt like they were limiting themselves and their liability. But uh, most of the, I think all of the patrolling companies have their own hazard tree assessment program that they train their guys on. Um, but you know, you have different levels of, of experience uh, you start an arborist out that's patrolling a line that may only have a, a month or two of training. Um, they're relying on their supervisors to come out and take a look at things where, you know, when do you pull the trigger on that tree? Uh, frequency of patrols on the low voltage lines, it's, it is defined by the utilities, but most of them, uh, the encroachments, that's an annual thing that we do in California. The scope of the patrols, all tall trees, tall enough to strike high voltage lines regardless of the location. Low versus high hazard areas. Um, you might have really expensive utility or uh, expensive real estate where you wanna spend every year taking a look at every tree. Um, and the patrols and inspection methods, do you do a line patrol? Uh, do you get into some detail? Do you uh, fly the line? There's a variety of ways that you can do this, um, but it's still up to the utility to develop that. Mitigation types and thresholds or triggers, site considerations, abatement. What are we going to do with this tree if this tree's dead? Are we gonna take it completely down? Uh, one of the strategies is we just make it facility safe which means we take enough of the tree down so that if it does fail, it doesn't hit the line. Now, sometimes that doesn't go over real well with the property owner, so it's, it ends up being a negotiated thing. But um, at a bare minimum, we'll take that tree down so that it's at a level that it will not contact the line uh, when it falls. Worker qualifications, again, what you were saying, those are um, some utilities put together their own uh, classifications and standards. Um, other utilities will just leave that in the contract as a responsibility of the contractor. And documentation is really important. You want to have this when you end up in court over some litigation and you want to demonstrate that you have best of class in your program, it'll, it'll definitely help limit your liability. Um, emerging issues for utilities on fire risk. This is probably something that's gonna be possibly a little new to you. Um, we're starting to see fires, well, we've seen them for many years, but we're having fires caused by birds. Now, why is that important to us? Well, as you can see, the bird comes in, uh, depending on our construction, um, if these line, if these conductors are a little closer, comes in contact, an instant flash, kills the bird, falls down, and can start a catastrophic fire. Here's a pretty good, this it was a very big fire. Um, 
bird nests uh, are a big issue. So you, you've got this constant chance of contact with the birds. Now, you might say to me, well, that's just nature. I mean, it's just chance. Well, we have a thing called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So we basically have to protect every bird in California except for three different species. So we can't just go out and do everything. And we have this agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and we've had, we've been fined by them for the way that uh, we've maintained our facilities. So we have construction, which is triangular construction where there's like maybe 18 inches different or clearance between the conductors. So we know there's going to be outages and we know there's going to be bird fatalities. So the way to manage around that for PG&E was to say, okay, every time we have a bird outage, we will um, put in wider cross arms for so many segments on each side. So what I think is coming to the utility is that we know, they know they are managing a risk there. They have made a decision not to go and get the clearances on every single area where there's a potential for a fire or a bird kill. So um, what's happening now is we're starting to look at, this is a Rayco covering that's around a transformer uh, equipment. We're also putting in these devices here so that the birds will uh, land up there and they will stay away from the conductors. But it's, a, it's an emerging issue. It's something that the fire folks have not really grabbed onto yet, but it is, I know that the guy that manages the bird program within PG&E is just waiting for them to start knocking at his door. Uh, managing risks in high value urban neighborhoods. This is another thing. Uh, PG&E worked with CAL FIRE um, and they helped us identify the, the levels of fire risk, whether they were extreme, high, moderate, or low. Then the company made decisions that uh, they would plan to treat extreme and high-risk areas. So they were actually doing additional work uh, that was over and above tree-line uh, contacts and hazard trees and, and spending some time in these areas. We used our data on outage reports, uh, cross-reference with outages and, and ignitions. Uh, we reviewed the tree species prone to failure, added type of failure, branch, trunk, uh, root failure, and then we set geographic boundaries and developed a vegetation prescription. Now, Oakland Hills uh, is in the Bay Area. It is a community that um, built a lot of, uh, well, very expensive real estate and almost all eucalyptus. So very high fire hazard. Um, and a lot of utilities, or a lot of uh, eucalyptus that were overhanging over the power lines. So you can imagine this, I mean, there probably isn't a home in this area that is under a million dollars. This, this was not a uh, power line fire, but this was a real good wake-up call for the utilities. What are we going to do in some of these areas where you have this kind of risk? Um, we need to put a little bit more time into those areas and limit the liability for the company. So you can see it's pretty bad devastation just for acres and acres and acres.
So they're looking at more and more areas and they're going out, they're actually working with risk managers within the company to designate areas where they're gonna go in and do this additional work. So as a utility vegetation manager in California, you worry about your customers, neighborhoods, and destruction from wires on your watch. I hated these scenes. I can tell you from my 15 years, um, there's nothing worse than to go and visit an area that you knew was started by a power line down and to see people that were sifting through their homes knowing that you'd done everything you could, but maybe it was a green tree that came over, um, what it, whatever it was. Huge responsibility, I'm sure that that's shared by you um, in Australia and other areas. So, I don't miss fire season. Um, after being retired, it's something that, uh, I don't think Howard will miss fire season either. Um, and thank you. This concludes Nelson Money's talk on California's utility vegetation management and fire risk management programs. If you would like to learn more about vegetation management, the ISA publishes a best management practice booklet for integrated vegetation management. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this quiz is SA98. Nine, six. Again, SA9896. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA International Office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.